So like, I, I just feel like maybe get some older, more tired, dried out looking college co-eds if you insist on using a 30 year old <laughs> man for your movie. Dried out co-eds. That's a terrible porno name. <laughs> yeah, that's probably going to make deleted scenes. <laughs> right. I did not expect to like all the movies this week quite as much as I did. Really? Why not? I'll be honest. Starting with the, I watched them in chronological order and the graduate, I disliked so much (laughs) that I thought maybe the birdcage was like a fluke. Wow. (laughs) Um, yeah, well, I don't know if that the problem with The Graduate is his fault or if it's the screenwriter's fault. I honestly couldn't tell. But none I, of the people in those movie in that movie act like people. Yeah, like I think it's more the screenwriter's fault because well one, I mean there're just things in the movie that have not aged particularly well as far as you know, sexual manipulation, uh, stalkery, <laughs> people breaking up happy, well, people breaking up homes, not necessarily happy homes, but there's a lot in The Graduate that just didn't age well just through the sands of time. I think even if yes. you look at it from a comedy standpoint, like, you can tell they were going for the jest, for the jokes, but it was like, there's this thing that straight guys do where it's like, oh, you didn't fuck her? Like, you could have fucked her or whatever. But it's like, you know, just because someone's willing to do it, like, that doesn't mean you have to do it. And so I feel like if I would have watched this even in 20, maybe even 2010, it's like this older, attractive woman is trying to give you, you know, the cooch. You know, you catch the cooch and you do what a man would do with the cooch. That was 2010 showing my love. 2020 showing my love can see it very clearly that she was de- he was definitely uncomfortable for whatever reason. And even 2020 showing my love can see this is a person who's so young, who's so trapped in with this current situation, his current life. He can't even properly articulate what he's going through. He's not processing anything. He feels immensely dissatisfied or immensely scared or immensely nervous about transitioning from college to the real world. In college, he was somewhat completely successful, completely accomplishments out the ass. Now he's graduated, he doesn't know what to do with his life, which... Except, as I I was chatting with a friend of the podcast and... uh, past guest David Avalone about this movie and we both were pretty upset that Dustin Hoffman is visibly 30. Uh, I don't know. Which which to me really took me out of it. I've only seen him look old. So Right, but like as someone who has been the graduate age in this last year, he doesn't look like that. Even if you dress him up as it's 1967 whatever, right? And he puts on this whinging voice that I can't stand. Because that's not how he talks. Hmm. Hmm. Elaine certainly is an attractive girl, isn't she? I don't remember her as having brown eyes. Benjamin? Yes. Will you come over here a minute? Over there? Mm-hmm. Sure. Will you unzip my dress? 
I think I'll go to bed. Oh, well, good night. Won't you unzip my dress? I'd rather not, Mrs. Robinson. If you still think I'm trying to seduce you... No, I don't, but I just feel a little funny. Benjamin, you've known me all your life. I know that, but I'm just... Come on, it's hard for me to reach. And, like, I get, I get the idea. I like the idea. I like the idea of the who are you after college when who you are doesn't apply anymore. But I did not feel that this movie captured the reality of that it didn't do it verbally but that's when mike nichols is kind of shining like if you if you go back and look at kind of how when we're introduced to benjamin we see that mike nichols is like super tied up like super Mm -hmm. in the box super in the frame his big ass head but it's kind of like you're sort of forced into this like pressure box and he you kind of get the visually that like benjamin is trapped he's kind of trapped by expectations and he doesn't know what to do and he feels completely overwhelmed i personally i didn't have like a problem with him not looking like he was 21 like i said i've only my dustin uh hoffman experience is basically outbreak and older so i've only seen him just look old or whatever so even seeing him in his mid-20s that was that was something that you know it it, it didn't really give me either one way or the other but i think that there's things visually that nichols does that the writers can't do or don't do that make the movie you know i would say as far as like a pop culture thing, like mm-hmm. the movie is kind of special because there's even there's things that obviously uh, visually that are just stuck with us through throughout time. Like even the shot with the leg, you know, that's like a that's like an infamous shot. And I even seen that on the television show that was just created in like 2019, 2020. So this is something that has transitioned throughout time. It's I mean it's probably going to be with us hopefully it's still with us you know for a long time visually like i said the aesthetic of mike nichols is really talented but there's Mm -hmm. just things with the writing of the film that are very kind of (laughs) that are just kind of unsatisfactory there are i think a lot of really good ideas in this movie i like the idea of struggling with one's identity i like the idea of struggling with how to deal with an affair. I like the idea of realizing that someone you've known your whole life maybe is your soulmate and you never even thought of it before. I like kind of a lot of the things that this movie is doing, but it's so turned up to 11. Sometimes I would even say turned up to like 15 that I couldn't engage with it in a serious way. Do you want to... uh... And you want to try and tell me why you did it? Mr. Robinson. Do you have a special grudge against me? Do you feel a particularly strong resentment? No. Is there something I've said that's caused this contempt, or is it just things I stand for that you despise? It was nothing to do with you, sir. Well, Ben, it was quite a bit to do with me. Now, look, please. Ben, I think we're two civilized human beings. Do you think it's necessary to threaten each other? I'm not threatening you. Do you want to unclench your fist, please? Thank you. I can see in the dark, you know. I've been here quite a while. I'm trying to tell you I have no personal feelings about you, Mr. Robinson. I'm trying to tell you I do not resent you. You don't respect me terribly much either, do you? No, sir. What? No, sir. Don't shout at me, Ben. I may not be as young as you, but I still have pretty good hearing. Mr. Robinson. Have the decency to wait until I finish. I wrote down one line in the entire movie, which is, Mrs. Robinson, you're the most attractive of my parents' friends, I swear. Mostly because I feel like I need to find a way to weave that into my Twitter bio. (laughs) But I was more interested in, like, Mrs. Robinson's dress. Like, I liked that silver dress with the, like, black chiffon kind of shift over it. Like, I didn't didn't care what she was saying. I didn't care what she was doing. I didn't care what Benjamin's sexual hang-ups were or were not. The only character I really cared about was Elaine. And, and by the end, I was like, okay, I don't really care about her either because she will marry whoever, run away with whoever. Like, what is she going to do when she gets tired of Dustin Hoffman and wants to get back with the makeout king or doesn't want to be poor 
anymore because do you think Dustin Hoffman's parents are really going to be super jazzed to welcome him back after all that nonsense? Um, I think it's just a movie about just people, I guess, not making wise choices. (laughs) Like that's, I feel like that's kind of what it is. Right. Um, But he just comes off as desperate and she comes off as the second woman in a movie made in the sixties. And thusly, she cannot have a personality. And that's why I think the script was probably written more of a comedy because a lot of comedies don't really give a shit about development in that kind of way. Because, mm-hmm. like, even if you think about, you know, the relationship between Hoffman and, you know, the young girl, we have no clue why they even really love each other. They just do. Like, there's, like, there's no, like, intimate conversations. There's no... There's like a date and then um, there's a it. pretty intimate conversation though where she talks about assuming like finding out spoilers for a movie from 1967 uh, or she's like when you like raped my mother she really says like I really liked you and then I found out what you were and even if that's not true that's a pretty soul-bearing conversation to have that's after he stalks her and moves her to Berkeley but it's kind of, I'm, I'm, and forces I'm, us to listen to the same 30 second chunk of a Simon and Garfunkel song over and over. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I'm, but I mean, like, even before that, like, why does Dustin Hoffman love this woman to the point of not committing to his future, stalking her, and moving different cities? Like, I don't understand the build up to that. As someone who's, now a year out of college and doesn't have a job yet i assume it is so his parents will leave him alone (laughs) i mean skirting responsibilities to just get married to someone like that i mean parents love nothing more than a wedding to their (laughs) kids or to their friends kids i guess (laughs) my parents i guess my parents don't give a shit about me (laughs) Like, well, do, is there like a, a appropriately aged kid of their friend you could marry? Oh no! Because no. if there was, then you could like swoop right in, and they would be like all over you again. That's the secret. I don't know. My family's, especially my mom's side, our ideas of marriage. <laughs> I guess that's a deleted scene for another day, but <laughs> um, but. So you buy that they were that immensely in love? I mean, I guess. Like, I don't know. I, I believe that he's in love with her. I mean, honestly, I, I may have read into this movie too much, but I honestly felt that maybe the issue is actually Mr. Robinson. Oh, ex- extrapolate that. What do you mean? So he is very aggressive. He somehow invades the privacy of the daughter to figure out exactly what's going on between him and her. The wife tells him what happened between them. And he he responds by saying, like, don't threaten me when there's visibly no threat. And he proceeds to basically try to dominate the situation in a way that makes Elaine unhappy, that makes Mrs. Robinson unhappy, and that makes Benjamin unhappy. And I can't help but wonder if Elaine perhaps went along with getting married to the makeout king entirely to get away from her overbearing, seemingly at least emotionally manipulative father. I mean, the mom, she's emotional at the lid of two. Yeah. Um, but I so think you're kind of on the right course, though. I can't help but think that, really, she would have married any man, Muppet, dog, giraffe that walked through the door if it meant she didn't have to live in that house any longer. I wonder kind of what the politics of that were back then, because it's like, she's obviously a woman in college, and that should kind of signify that she is independent. But I mean, hell, actually, maybe not even in politics at the time, because I even knew women, even when they graduated college, they were still kind of under this like, quote unquote, spell of being kind of binded to their parents in unhealthy ways. So. And also, I think a lot of women at the time, and I would say less so now, but it was pretty common that you lived with your parents until you had a pretty serious, either really close girlfriend you could live with or like a a fiance. Yeah. 
yeah. you know? So she was kind of stuck there until she had a ring. And if the ring meant that she had to go get married tomorrow, like at least think- she doesn't have to live with her shithead parents. Like to me, this, that's the tragedy of this movie, right? I want a movie about Elaine Robinson and Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, Mrs. Robinson, who happens to be having an affair with her childhood acquaintance. And like, I want it from her perspective because I feel like that's much funnier, don't you? In 2020, with the right writer, with the right woman writer and a woman director, I'd agree. Please keep Mr. Nichols on as cinematographer, though. (laughs) I just think this, like I said, like this time period, this script, like it's not really, it's not trying to get into deeper levels and subtext and any of that. Like it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't even explore any of the sexual manipulation it doesn't take an even moment to kind of ponder about him kind of stalking her and how that's completely gross. Like, it doesn't do any of those things that... Well, we also don't talk about the fact that Mrs. Robinson basically, like, strong arms him into sleeping with her initially. Yeah, that's a sexual manipulation. She completely manipulates him. Mm-hmm. And... It's, it's mega gross <laughs> like, yes. like it's there's kind of no ways around it and like i said like even even if we go beyond just the sexual politics or lack thereof in the movie and even when we focus on initially what the issue is of the movie where you have this young kid who's graduating college and doesn't know what to do with his life i think the 90s were pretty good at, at kind of extrapolating that a bit and i do think now it could be even, I would say, maybe even like a resurgence of that, especially my generation who graduated college. We graduated into a recession. Your generation graduated college and graduated into another recession. Like, like we are the generation of, of miscast diplomas. Like, our yes. diplomas are all collecting dust. Our interest for these federal student loans are piling up sky high. I think I told you this like in a way earlier episode, but I was definitely, we were definitely the first generation of people that told us go to college, you'll be a success in life. But, you know, none of the world really prepared us for that. They just, they just gave us debt and then then expected us to be happy with it. So, you know, I think even in the graduate, it's the really first rumblings of that wrestling with expectations. Now he was a, he was a white guy. He was a white man whose family had connections, who was like upper middle class. Like you would think on the surface, he really shouldn't have any problems, but we all kind of have problems with identity and I think um, I was just angry that. that he never took advantage of any of the things that were like literally being offered to him. But that's the thing. Like a smarter movie would have explored why he had a burden. Like, mm-hmm. like if you like I said, if you look at the service, he's a white man. His family has connections. He graduated all these honors. Why do you feel so unprepared for life when life has literally groomed you for twenty one years mm-hmm. to be successful? That would a better writer would have been able to explore that. I also just feel like, and this is I guess me kind of throwing this out there in in kind of a way i don't know how influenced i was by growing up in a world like so far post this movie when i i think i texted this to you where i was like if you know anything about the graduate it's like it feels like a drain and you're circling the drain and circling the drain and circling the drain to mrs robinson you're trying to seduce me and if you know that that's coming the first 45 minutes of this movie are garbage it's questionable to say the very very least yes um you know and if you know that that is coming and it happens then the next half an hour is questionable too i I think i gave this a three or a three and a half on letterboxd but Mm -hmm. i still felt like the things that i liked about this movie are things that i liked in other better movies i feel that nichols made but i feel like this script needed just a little more for me to be into it yeah, I think I think watching this so far removed from the late 60s you you can really see the seams on the ball here like mm-hmm. there's a lot this movie is flawed but it's still a classic which I mean classic flaws are what make American film 
American film. <laughs> Shout out right. to Gone with the Wind. Oh, boy. <laughs> but exactly. especially as someone who, like, I'm having that year right now. Yeah. The early life crisis. Yes. Yeah. I feel like this movie, I shouldn't necessarily relate to all of it, but I feel like I should maybe relate to some of it kind of maybe. I mean, he was white. Cool. <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got, yo. That's all he, I got. He's white and he's into old ladies. <laughs> I mean, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> yeah, not, not my tea. But no, like, there's way more intelligent movies than this. And like I said, it's more of a comedy than anything. But if we're looking at this, like I said, watching this now, and this is a movie through osmosis, I already knew what was going to happen. And even speaking to your, what you were saying, like, if you kind of know what's happening, but you actually watch the movie, there's a real sort of being let down that actually happens. Like, even even from uh, fucking Wayne's World 2, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a classic, <laughs> you knew the ending of The Graduate. Oh, Jesus, God, no. Sorry! Sorry, everybody! Wrong wedding! You knew how, how the shit was going to end. You knew, like, the when he was going into the tunnel, and I remember the Wayne's World joke where the static happened and the radio went out. Like, shit like that. Like, you know, just through yeah. osmosis, like, everything that made this movie important in 1967 and 2020, like, I knew the cues of the movie. I didn't know specifically how... Mike Nichols directorial style was this great like even for Closer like Closer was a movie that I watched for, like um at least like five years ago something like that I didn't I didn't care who directed it then I just knew it was a wild ass fire ass mm-hmm. movie but The Graduate if we were doing you know who won the movie it's it's Mike Nichols without a question yes I would agree I would make an argument that uh I think Simon and Garfunkel did a fair showing I don't necessarily think they will. They they didn't win. It was like it was more of a whelm situation. They didn't underwhelm. They didn't overwhelm. They showed up. They did what they had to do, and they left. Maybe because the cues were weird. They replayed songs. Well, um, I assumed that was to show like the monotony of the year in which nothing happens, but like you know, and every day starts to kind of blend together. And although that may just be my like, this is the time of COVID nineteen brain talking. So uh, I, I don't mean, know. Yeah, I I don't know about that. I mean, we're so used to movies doing different, so many different songs, even television shows hitting so many different songs in twenty five minutes that replaying a song you know again at least i swear there was one song they played three times in a row they played the chorus of some song at least five or six times it oh was- yeah <laughs> everything you want as long as it's scarborough fair oh my god scarborough fair <laughs> oh my god which by the way the longer you listen to scarborough fair the more you realize it's just a guy going to a renaissance fair giving his girlfriend a shopping list what was what was sage rosemary <laughs> sage parsley <laughs> parsley sage rosemary and thyme the oh name of my first D and D team I was rosemary oh my god that's wild man shout out to having Simon and Garfunkel D and D teams I'm trying to learn Scarborough Fair on the ukulele just to like have for Ren Fair bullshit the full circle moment. I mean, I've known that song longer than I knew The Graduate existed. Hilarious. That's funny. Bro, <laughs> he kept me playing it. And I was trying to, like, because at first I heard it, I was, for some reason, I was thinking, I think I missed, like, the beginning lyrics. And I thought it was, like, people or I was some deep metaphor. But then they played it again. I was like, he's just repeating spices. Like, what? what yeah, is this? I mean, God forbid whoever named their kid Parsley. There's a person named Apple in the world. So, I mean, listen, 
I had a friend whose character in the D&D campaign, because he didn't show up that day, wound up being Parsley. Jeez. It Don't happens. Call me Time. Don't call me Parsley. Time is actually a fire name. If I'm going to call okay, the like, Time, is it? Straight up, there were four members of the team. Three of them showed up. They picked their names. I would If I would have had the first round pick, I'm Time. Yeah, no, but he didn't show up. So he was our Berserker Parsley. Berserker Parsley. <laughs> Overspiced. And then Parsley died. Oh, man. As Parsley often does die on dishes. Yeah, that's funny. So other than Mike Nichols, is there anything to really extrapolate from this movie? Because um, some of the costumes are good. Oh, if you Elaine, like if you like sixties fashion, it's like kind of fun to look at. Um, Elaine was dressing. Um, yeah, Elaine was probably my actual favorite part of this movie, besides just like the existence of the concept of cinematography. Yeah, I don't shit. Shout out to Mr. Feeney. That was a good scene, Mr. Feeney. It's a, speaking of people I've only seen old, I only seen Mr. Feeney old. So seeing him less old was is. funny. Oh my god. Is that the boy, boy Meets World guy? Oh my god. Yes. He was his dad. He was. Oh, he was oh I think I think I know him from something else, but I was really afraid if I said that I would come across as even like older and more out of touch. Yeah. There's no way you know Mr. Feeney as being anything but Mr. Feeney. Strong disagree. William Daniels, come on. Yeah, he was the voice of Kit in Knight Rider, and he is also. He's John Adams in 1776, which is one of my favorite TV movie musicals of all time. I've watched it probably a hundred times. That's where I know him from. Jesus, Mr. Feeney was not Mr. Feeney before. That's the only thing I learned about this movie. Mike Nichols has talent, and Mr. Feeney was not Mr. Feeney. That's all I know about this movie. It's like sound advice or whatever. It's like comics, conventions, and cosplay, or whatever. It's like ladies' night, or whatever. It's like wrestling, or whatever. It's like parenting, or whatever. It's like anime, or whatever. It's like spiritual warfare, or whatever. It's like great friends, awesome people, coming around doing what we do best. Or whatever. You should watch, listen, and follow. Or whatever. It's like a podcast or whatever. Speaking of cool, Dennis Quaid has just met Shirley MacLaine. Just now. (laughs) The most... You know he was a fucking scumbag wearing black leather and all black suits in, in California. And SoCal I mean, at that. That's kind of my thing. So, like, I can't be too mad. Bro, he's a total fucking scumbag, man. I, Look- I, did, I thought he was going to be a scumbag, but I didn't realize quite how bad until the movie was like, oh, by the way. Like, here's, <laughs> here's his literal playbook written he, out. Nah. I also liked that one of the actresses was like, See, he's using new material on you. Like, that's good. <laughs> it means he likes you. Annette Benning. Shout out, shout out to Annette Benning, just a random prostitute in this fucking movie, man. I know. Postcards from the Edge is really the fucking bee's knees, man. But no, nah, let's go. Let, we got to stick to this Quake because he's the fucking scumbag of, of the decade in this fucking movie. Oh my God. Like, I like Evelyn. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, she told me. She told you? Yeah. She told me you fucked her Saturday. Saturday afternoon. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. No, here you go. Straight from her on Saturday afternoon to me on Saturday night. Excuse me, I didn't know you had exclusive Whatever happened to moderation? Whatever happened to discretion? Well, I can't speak for moderation, but as far as discretion goes, what were you and Evelyn doing? Comparing notes on the set? We were comparing notes. She just told me she fucked you on Saturday. Oh, oh, just like that? She just marches right up to you and just blows her wad? Or did you nose it out of her? She said that she was in it for the endorphins. Sorry, the endolphins. 
You said you loved me. I meant it at the time. He's wearing black cowboy boots. Get the fuck out of here, yo. He has a ranch. That shit ain't no damn ranch. <laughs> he got a he got a ranch in his refrigerator cabinet. Like, get out of here. Bro, this shit is crazy. I, I kind of liked him. All right. And then I was like, oh, he's just like a garden variety scumbag. And then it was like, <laughs> oh no, he's the worst. Yeah. I like, had it it escalated real quick. I had no clue he was gonna come back in this fucking movie. I thought he was just a one-off just drop well, one, he drops a OD person off at the hospital shirt open which wearing a jacket and then just dips out with no yeah. shoes on no socks and doesn't on. doesn't leave a forwarding number i'll call you i'll call you my ass i'll call 911 i'll get you directly he's a total fucking scumbag yo yeah he's he, kind of the worst the more i'm he, thinking about it the more angry i'm getting and then he he's he dresses like he's in a comic book he only Wears the same clothes, <laughs> the same beat Lee denim distressed jeans. Um, I believe in 2020 we call that branding. Jesus, <laughs> this is a the sleaze bag, <laughs> sleaze bag the, fit. The of all sleaze fits. bag 2020 resort wear collection. He, this man has a he's wearing a motorcycle jacket and cowboy boots in SoCal. I can't do it, yo. <laughs> I'm so tired. A silk black shirt underneath. <laughs> I'm okay, so tired. Like, hey, costume designers for this movie, where did you get those sunglasses? Bro, well, the sunglasses in this movie are really top notch. Like everyone's. They, yeah. I, like, I think my personal favorite is definitely Meryl Streep's. Like, she had that shit down. Uh, I've already been checking places to source them. Ooh, those shits are vintage now. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, they were vintage then. That's the hard part. Well, yeah, I would, I would guess that as well, yes. I don't, I'm not trying to imply at all, for those of you that don't know what I look like, that I look like Meryl Streep because I don't. But, uh... You got a, you got a little, you got a little... We both have very strong noses. You put the myrrh in Meryl. Aw, thank you. Uh, I look more like her daughter, I think. I'm, I really appreciate Meryl in this movie, man. I really do appreciate her. She did a lot. She, I think if I say she carried the movie, it's like a, it's an overstatement, but it's an understatement also. Like all the parts of this movie are just really excellent. I think that the two, so her and the mom... Shirley um, McLean, yeah. Carry this. Remember my 17th birthday party when you lifted your skirt up in front of all those I people? I did not lift my guy skirt. Michael. It twirled up! You only remember the bad stuff, don't you? What about the big band that I got to play at that party? Do big you remember band. that? No! You only remember that my skirt accidentally twirled up! And you weren't wearing any underwear. Well... Yeah, it's a two-woman show, yeah. Yes, and I, even though, like, in my brain, I knew it was, you know, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. They still felt so unique, you know? They felt like their own actresses with their own history, but with the same conflict, Yeah, you know? And I thought that that was really, it allowed them to do a little bit of their own characterization, while still capturing a lot of the energy that those characters have yeah. in the, in the, I say characters, but like those women had. Yeah. And I think that was really wonderful. Definitely. You can feel the weight and the strain of Doris, who the character that Sherry McLean plays, mm-hmm. uh, you can feel the weight that she actually has over Susan, yeah. Um, the, the the relationship feels very authentic. You can definitely tell, like a lot of that really did come, you know, from Carrie's real life. Obviously, there's some aspects of this movie that you know didn't really happen to Carrie. I don't think she became a a country singer at the end. <laughs> I think she was in a in a movie where she had to sing though. Oh, she was really. Well, I think so. The uh, Carrie Fisher trilogy coming I soon. Thought, I thought the idea was that it was supposed to be kind of a takeoff on what was considered her comeback performance. 
it might have been a metaphor for her work on the Blues Brothers. Oh, okay. That would make sense. I don't know if she acted in the Blues Brothers, but I know that she was in it and she did a lot of script work on it. She yeah, did a she lot was fixer work. Yeah, she was a script doctor for a lot of different projects. So I think it might be alluding to that. Did you know of anyone, and you don't have to name names, obviously, but did you know of anyone, like, just friends that you have or people that you've met before where they really couldn't juggle the burden that their parents place on them? Yep. Yeah, that's real. I think it's especially a a problem with only children. I think it's also especially problems with only children from, like, what I would describe as, like, nuclear households. Okay. So even if it's not kind of the traditional nuclear household, like it's clear that she's pretty close with her mother, right? And her mother was a performer and she had all these dreams for her and she really laid out what those dreams were. And she kind of, to use a metaphor from um, the musical Gypsy, she kind of mama, mama rosed her. She always kind of supported her, but in a way that it was really a screen for her own ambition. And that can screw people up forever. The only, it's funny, the, there's kind of a slight similarity. And when we talked about a better script would have actually helped the movie, like the graduate kind of has that also where Benjamin has expectations for his life from all these different people, mm-hmm. but postcards from the edge, it kind of shows you kind of the aftermath of, you know, how to really handle that kind of pressure. But like, we can definitely agree <laughs> Postcards from the Edge is definitely written better than The Graduate. I love this movie. Yes. Like, I, I'll be honest, I teared up at the scene in the hospital where she started doing her makeup. Oh, yeah, that was a really good scene. And they were having that talk. But also at the same time, like, that, that moment where, can't I have something that's mine, mother? Like, <laughs> you know, can't I have some friends that are just my friends? Yeah. I do get that. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it feels real, and it's really hard when you thought you were doing fine in life and life comes back and says well no 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 you weren't yeah and you kind of have to go back to square one i did you know have people in my life that did have that pressure for me personally like i was never burdened with that i mean that's that's actually kind of a good and bad thing like i came from a household where you know i didn't necessarily fend for myself or whatever but there wasn't much expectation to do anything, honestly. Like, it was it was kind of like, just go to school and don't get in trouble. I'm like, it's, it was very, like, that elementary or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the only expectations I had to deal with were just burdens that I placed on myself, honestly. But I did see how, you know, people out of college, you know, even years out of college, still having to deal with, you know, pressure from their, their folks and not really managing it uh, well. Yeah. Um, so it is, it does kind of suck that that is a real thing that Carrie has to go through. Um, yes. And this, the standard she has, uh, which we're drinking, <laughs> she definitely, I don't know if you watched that. It is actually, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, which we're drinking, basically she breaks down her family, like lineage really. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see from, you know, her family in Hollywood and kind of going down to her to kind of see specifically, you know, what those burdens would have been. And yeah. I'm guessing that's a lot of things she worked out in therapy and just talking to mm-hmm. her mom or whatever. But I think the most beautiful thing about Carrie that I always admired was just her ability, especially like later in life, to kind of really assess like, the truth about things and to kind of you know be just always willing to to kind of come to the truth in some way yeah and she was funny as fuck so yeah. <laughs> i've always loved carrie man your mother was married to, to my father to your father my uh <laughs> hey these days you know that's something know. Uh, my father was a man named Eddie Fisher, and uh, he they were best friends with uh, Elizabeth Taylor and her husband at the time, Mike Todd. Mike Todd tragically, tragically passed died. away yeah. in a plane accident, and my father consoled Elizabeth with his penis. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I, I have said before, and I will say again, that I have always appreciated how 
forthright Carrie has been about her her life and her struggles and her ability to exist with them. Yeah. And that is something that as as a kid who grew up with really supportive parents, but also parents that had a lot of dreams and goals and ambitions for me, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. I really appreciate it because I felt like, you know, even though it's not the same, it did help me understand in a way that I wouldn't have had before. So it's good that they weren't necessarily too overbearing. So um, mine were <laughs> underbearing. Well, actually, just for that, they were kind of wild in other places. But that's a deleted scene for another day. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm watching postcards right now. And I'm, mm-hmm. at, I'm at your favorite scene in the movie where we see the cheeks of Dennis Quaid for like three yes. seconds. So you still had hope for him in this ass shot that we got? I was kind of hoping it was a misunderstanding, but as soon <laughs> as I realized that it wasn't, I abandoned ship pretty hard. Oh, man. Oh, you well, I, was, I was hoping it was going to come back and be like that woman was like something was up with her. Like she had been spurned and she was upset. Like I was... Uh. Well, because he seemed good for her. I guess, like, not actually, but, like, it was better than drugs. Touche. <laughs> Men or drugs, pick. <laughs> uh, right now, I think I'd take the drugs. How? But, you know, so, like, I was, I was hoping that it was going to be something like that, where it was kind of going to be like, oh, it was a misunderstanding, and now part of this movie is going to be addressing how this happened. You know how I knew he was kind of, well, I knew he was a sleaze bag from the hospital drop-off scene, but when he got out of the shower and he took the hit of the dope, he made this really scumbag face that really, I knew the jig was up. Yeah. Look at him. He's buttoned these fucking Lee jeans. They're fucking faded. He he has like 50 of these depressed fucking ashy gray pants. Get this guy out of here, man. Twitching. Jesus, look at look at his fucking eyes, man. He just want he's dying to tell a fucking lie right now. Look at this fucking guy. I mean, that's the thing when he when he started kind of yeah. I I thought you said you loved me. Well, I did then, bro. I meant it at the time, bro. That's some hard ass shit to say to somebody. I meant it at the time. Jesus Christ, nah, man, get this guy out of here. You can't be breaking my girl's heart like this, man. Get the fuck out of here. I also have to say, this is another one of those movies where I felt like the the cinematography was a character. Mike Nichols does a a really good job with this movie, too. Even the whole just kind of quasi-breaking the fourth wall with, like, even even the scene when she's tied up to the cactus and the guy pops up from the painted background. Oh, my God. I I could not stop laughing. (laughs) I had no clue that that was actually paint. I thought it was real. They did a really good job with this movie, man. Like, Mike Nichols, you know, you guys got some fucking talent, this fucking guy. I, one of the things that I noticed, even, like, the last time I watched The Birdcage, and I watched it a few weeks ago for my birthday, was that I just noticed, like, the way that the camera moved was so... It feels like a character is making this, you yeah. know? It feels like whoever Joe Cameraman is... <laughs> is is telling us a story but also in a way that doesn't feel invasive which i i really value because i feel sometimes it's very possible for camera work to be a little overbearing or hand-holding yeah and this isn't but it is still distinct and present and i i really value that i don't have any complaints about this movie honestly there's like even Gene, oh my god, I love Gene Hackman in this movie. Gene Hackman has another one of the best scenes in this movie. You're talking about the, the the last dialogue scene they had together. Yeah, bro, that shit was so fire, man. And I'm really happy they didn't cheapen out with like a, a fucking kiss, man. God, damn, I so also happy. love that he's like, I would have had it better if you'd shown up when you said you would. Like, <laughs> I love that he's kind of salty that like he didn't have enough time to actually prepare. Like, I yeah, and that's like a total thing. Like, I could hear it in Carrie Fisher's voice. Yeah, and I I just I love that. Yeah, man, like, this movie proves, like, you need an OG. Like, every everyone yep. needs someone older to kind of, like, give them a pat on the head and the kick in the pants, like. Yeah, 
I, I agree. Like, it's funny, like, Gene Hackman in this movie reminded me how great of an actor Gene Hackman is. Mm-hmm. Like, and he's, he's, he's getting up there in age, and, you know, he's still with us. But we covered, you know, the conversation uh, mm-hmm. weeks ago. But he's kind of, I don't know if it's because he was in, like, the like the Brando, well, not the Brando, but he was more of the, like, the De Niro, Pacino generation that he's kind of just, like, forgotten, maybe, but... I he mean, seems super slept on, I'll be I honest, think, and I'm I think not... So. I'm not a fan of it. Because even in the 90s, like, I'm thinking of his projects in the 90s, and, you know, he was in Birdcage, but he was, like, a Republican asshole. He was... He was that, a really well-done Republican asshole, though. I think, in the, I think the reason he's kind of forgotten is because in the 90s, I feel like for the most part, he, he just played assholes. Like, he, there's a movie he did with Denzel. I think it's Crimson Tide. I think that's which one it is. And he's, like, the commander of, like, this naval ship. And he's battling Denzel. And, De- he's like, and Denzel is, like, the new guy. And so he's, like, going toe-to-toe with the new guy. Like, Gene Hackman would kind of do that regularly where he would, he would be in the movies with the younger generations really showing like I'm the old man here, but then giving the the younger generations leeway to shine. He was in that, that cowboy movie. Um, I think it was quick and the dead. Um, yeah, but that had like, right. but that was Sharon stone, Leonardo DiCaprio and like some other young ass folks. So in the nineties, I think he kind of took a back seat and in the nineties when we had, you know, the Renaissance of like, not Renaissance, but we had home video. We had cable replays. A lot of his movies in that era, he was just getting replayed. It's kind of like, kind of like the side man. He was he was the number two or the number three or the number four. But like French Connection, like you don't really receive you you weren't really seeing that replayed in the cable era, honestly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Gene Hackman, come on the show. Yeah. No. Straight up. Can we? <laughs> See on Twitter? Can we just like email his Twitter and see if he? Oh, if Gene Hackman has a Twitter, man. If Gene Hackman can operate Twitter, that's hope for my my grandmother yet. My granny still texts and shit. I love it. Shout out to Granny. Aww. Granny, come on the show. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, yeah, no, straight up. Hilarious. I'm game. My my granny just watches westerns all day. So well, westerns in the news. So it may be very depressing. <laughs> Look, I don't have much time, all right? So let me just say something real quick. My name is EG, and I am the host of two shows that are part of the Hyphen Podcast Group. The first show is called Catch the Show. It's a show where I talk about music-related news and pop culture, upcoming tours that you may want to catch shows of, and I tell you about a show that I call because it's the number one concert review podcast in the world, and I've reviewed shows from Beyonce to Kendrick Lamar to even the Backstreet Boys. So yeah, that's Catch the Show. The other show is called The Underground Monster. Slightly different kind of show, but still music-related. It's where I cover basically underground independent hip-hop, horrorcore, and the juggalo culture. So yeah, if you're interested in either one, go to hyphenpodcastgroup.com and or go to your favorite podcast platform and just search for them and hit that subscribe button okay got that cool now let's get you back to the show you were originally listening to but a movie that is not depressing that is a wild fucking train ride it is pretty depressing it's closer to depressing <laughs> i mean i feel like it, it really shows a, a dark and bleak side of um, marriage and commitment and relationships. And uh, Jude Law. And also a, a dark and depressing side of Jude Law's optician. Ooh, Jude Law was so beautiful and talented, Mr. Ripley. Then that hairline went and boy. He's really good in The Holiday. In Nancy um, Myers' The Holiday as like sexy Mr. Mom. Like I would. So I don't understand what happened here. I don't know how we got here. Because this is 2004. And the holiday is later than the 2004s. Oh, you know, you know what it is? It was the hairline. And also he broke up with some famous actress. And I guess maybe that cursed him in the Hollywood or some shit like that. Yeah. The holiday is in 2006 and he has very good hair. Oh, his, 
does he still have his hairline in that movie? Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, he, if you remember um, Captain Marvel, oof, them days are long gone, boy. Oof. Oh, God. He's, he's been like broken up with people a lot of times. <laughs> Sienna Miller opens up about cheating ex-Jude Law. He was getting it in, man. Here is my in-depth review of the talented Mr. Ripley. What white man is more beautiful than Jude Law in this? (laughs) (laughs) He's got to be top three, man. Like, Jesus Christ. By the way, why didn't Clive Owen have a bigger career? What what happened? I don't know. And I'm unflinchingly salty about it honestly i think he was really really good yeah he was a very smarmy very quasi jerk offish but at least he's still on kind of his principles of defending the woman he loved somehow very endearing despite all of that yeah it's like he it's funny like he cheated but then he he basically kind of like admitted it immediately when he saw her and was kind of like, well, he couldn't hold the lie, but <laughs> Julia Roberts, she held the lie for like a full year plus. Mm-hmm. That's some hard ass living boy. Um, he's a William Jefferson Clinton on this season of American Crime Story. I believe he's on every episode this season. Uh, good luck with that, good sir. I mean, I kind of hope it helps. Maybe. It seems like he's been actively like working, but like more for him, please. Cause like, yeah, he was kind of smarmy, and yeah, he was like a little gross, but like he was still very earnest. No, yeah, that's it. He was extremely earnest. We met last year. Wrong girl. Talk to me. I am. Talk to me in real life. I didn't know you'd be here. I know who you are. I love you. I love everything about you that hurts. And I could never really dislike him. No, I never disliked him in this movie. It's actually funny, like, even the scene when he had with Natalie Portman in the strip club, you know, he's being very vulnerable, and he's kind of, there's there's parts of vulnerability and there's parts of, like, lashing out, but you only feel like he's doing that because it's kind of like a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. I think his character was pretty interesting, I'm actually kind of wanted more from the Natalie Portman character, honestly. I feel like of all of the three people, I feel like we kind of know her the least. So what do you reckon? In general. You want to talk about art? I know it's vulgar to discuss the work as an opening of the work, but someone's got to do it. I'm serious. What do you think? It's a lie. It's a bunch of sad strangers photographed beautifully and all the glittering assholes who appreciate art say it's beautiful because that's what they want to see. But the people in the photos are sad and alone, but the pictures make the world seem beautiful. So the exhibition's reassuring, which makes it a lie, and everyone loves a big fat lie. I'm the big fat liar's boyfriend. Bastard. Larry. Alice. Yes. I think, well, one, Natalie Portman is an excellent actor anyway, but I do think there's things below the surface that she never kind of had a chance to kind of tap into. I would agree. In the, the pink wig, like, yes. I liked the blonde wig. Oh, oh, yes. I think that was definitely number two. The end, though, when she was walking with the curly extensions, that was, I think that's number three. Yeah, that was good. But specifically though, about Closer, what are kind of your thoughts on Closer? So I was really, really drawn to just the drama in this movie. Like right away, I bought it. Yeah. Alice gets hit by car, cut to photographer, cut to I listened to your conversation in the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> take just take my picture and like the the energy and intensity with which these characters bounce off of each other was very large yeah. but it never felt fake yeah definitely and those quiet moments and those louder moments 
I think all really blended together to create this really coherent piece. Yeah. I also loved the a lot of the music choices. I, I do have to say, mid two thousands guy with an acoustic guitar song <laughs> playing over that intro outro. That was a little. That was the era. He, he they had the wave. That was their wave. That was a little on the nose. I felt. Where it's like life is hard. Down, down, down. Love isn't real. Down, down. I was like, all right, come on. Um, uh, this is two thousand four. It was very in their pocket, yes. Well, right, but like the the music when they're doing the chat scene on on the uh, anonymous message board. <laughs> yeah, that was that amped. music is amazing, <laughs> yeah. and it does not make the movie feel like it was made in two thousand and four. Yeah, even though yeah. all the tech looks like two thousand and four. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, and I I really liked that. Still, shout out to the. ASL gank. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, the performances, I was thinking, even though Natalie Portman, they could have gave her maybe kind of a bit more to do, I think the way that Julie Roberts is actually understated until the moment she blows up I think that works pretty well. Yeah. Like her like kind of erupting because Clive Owen is kind of pushing her to that. And she's actually kind of, that's actually, I feel like the, the first time she's just being truthful, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that scene where <laughs> he, he well, takes like you, but, you, but sweeter. sweeter. That's the spirit. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Now fuck off and die. You fucked up slag. <laughs> that shit was wild to say, but clearly, you know, Jude Law is a better lover in this movie than Clive Owen. But I mean, I think it's as the the youth say, different strokes for different folks. And Jude Law had the stroke down, buddy. Oof. I mean, for her, yeah. No, I think she was better than she was better for Natalie too. At the end, I prefer you. Mm. I also don't know how genuine that was by the end of this movie i felt like the moral of the story is don't trust natalie portman ever well she didn't well, other than her name she didn't necessarily lie about much thing to lie well, how how do you know that she didn't lie about much if she lied about literally the first thing he asked her directly oh you never give you never gave a guy like a fake name or like a a nickname that only three people call you by just so you wouldn't get like caught up in these streets. Not after he had saved me from a car accident and spent the whole day waiting for me in the hospital. Well, you know what? Actually, you know what it was? I think that was her kind of defense mechanism, not against him, but just her whole purpose of being in Britain. She left America. She came to the UK to kind of just start something new for herself. And with that, she had the new name. When she went back to America, she went back to her real name. Yeah. I I don't... Bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's a little more... Uh, I guess I guess the idea is that she's young and she actions don't have consequences for her because she's young and pretty and when she walks places with no bra, men stop to look at her and whatever. And I just felt like there was something about her arc that like in the course of a six-hour flight, she completely got over the last four years of her life it didn't sit right with me i wouldn't say that i think in the conversation especially at the end with jude law even before he even hits her i think in that moment she knew that jude law was just not the not the guy for her and she was never in love with clive owen anyway Mm -hmm. and the funny thing is like i've i've been in situations where i seen people you know kind of get over things kind of quickly and people kind of question well you're not really over how it's been so short of a time period how could you really be over it but I think if you in any aspect of your life if you can accept you know thing a is just not going to work for me and you truly accept that you you're way more willing to to move the thing b because you know that what you're leaving behind 
you're leaving behind for the right reason. So in the moment when Jude Law tries to test her loyalty by asking her a dumbass question, she knew that, you know, that was he, it for her. Yeah, he's selling for me because he can't be with Julia Roberts now. So I need to get the fuck out of here because I can't be with some guy that's kind of test me and kind of settled just with me. I kind of felt like he probably could be, though. Mm, like not settling for her? No, like, I think I think he would feel that he was settling for the rest of his life. I think he's one of those guys. But do you want to be with someone He would even eventually like that, feel like Julia Roberts was settling. Oh, I think Julia Roberts did settle. I think that's that. It's so weird. I think she did love him, but I think that you know she settled for him. Like, I think that's what that last shot kind of signified. Like, she's like kind of in the bed, just kind of. I feel like taking a moment to kind of think about like kind of everything. And so I do a moment think, in bed to think about how much she settled. I mean, I mean, hey, when life hits you, man, it hits you in these strange ways, man. We've we've all settled. I, I mean, bro, I got, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a deleted scene for ten minutes in the feature from now. <laughs> I think there's kind of a point where, like, if this person is never going to be satisfied, like, to me, that was kind of the, what I guess I thought Alice gave up on, is the idea that no one is ever going to be this person's plan A. Shit. I mean, if you're not going to be someone's plan A, man, hit the eject button right, right the fuck away. So Right. And I think that's what she realized. Yeah. But, like, I don't think it was specific to her, if that makes sense. I think... Julia Roberts, he would have gotten tired of her eventually too. You know, I think that he he seems to think that he's God's gift to women and sex and relationships and whatever. And like he's probably not. So ultimately, who leaves a movie the actual winner? Because Clive Owen. <laughs> Straight up. I'm thinking that too. Like he's got a Golden Globe nomination. And his wife back. I think he won. And Julia, Julia Roberts, have, she settled for a marriage. She just kind of quasi can stand. Jude Law is single. And Natalie Portman had to flee an entire country. Yeah. So <laughs> and she wound up in fucking Times Square of all places. So, so you yeah. Know, New York. Where the real New Yorkers go. Because <laughs> New Yorkers just, just stroll Times Square. Just <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess it's either tourist shorthand or meant to be oh, no, it is, yeah. uh, parodying the fact that that's where all the porn theaters used to be, implying that she is stripping again. I don't think Nichols went that far into it. Even though I do... Shit, I don't... Do people even know the real history of Times Square anymore? Because I feel like when some I, people do. Because I went there and yeah, it's just like Times Square is just it's a, a visual cue. Yeah, it's just an all visual cue. So she could have been like on a ferry from Jersey to New York with the Statue of Liberty in the background. You still kind of would get the same effect. But yeah, I don't think they I don't think they were going for like the the um, sexual work <laughs> of, of, of the uh, the subtext of the scene for that one. Just saying they could have. Oh, oh yeah, all. they, they could have. But, hell, I don't think they got any... They, they ain't no working... Well, they're probably all working girls. <laughs> that, actually, no, I don't think working girls would be in Times Square. There's too many families there, man. Like, you can't have kids just, you know, seeing Mary Jane You gotta grab corner. something for dad. Hey, for mom too. Hey, we don't discriminate. <laughs> I think that was a diss. <laughs> Hookers in Times Square was the diss. <laughs> Listen, you gotta stand what you gotta stand. Basically. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> be kind. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Never get down. It's all going to be okay. all going to be all right. We're one people. We're one family. We all live in the same house. Not just American house, but the world house. I wish you well. Find Kat at Kat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. S-H-O 
I-N-M-A-D-L-O-V. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Kat, K-A-T, and Mark, M-A-R-C. Read us at catseesmovies.tumblr.com and themarkrob, T-H-E-M-A-R-C-R-O-B.wordpress.com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chinetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenlee under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a Hyphen Podcast production. Are you not entertained?